0: Father, as we humble our hearts beneath your word, may you cause our love to abound yet more and more in knowledge and all insight, that we may approve things that are excellent, being sincere and blameless till the day of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. In Ezra 9, the book of Ezra, of course, you know, chronicles the history of the Jews, their return to Jerusalem after their 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And so the Jerusalem that they come back to is in ruins, The temple, which was the heart of the city, had been destroyed along with the walls of the city. And now a remnant of the Jews had returned from exile to rebuild. And eventually Ezra came to Jerusalem as a priestly scribe to ensure that the rebuilding of the city, and not just the buildings and the structures and the walls, but the rebuilding of the the people, the body, politic, was going to be according to God's word. And so, in chapter 9, in the book of Ezra, he returns to Jerusalem after a long trip to find that many of the people, including some of the leading citizens, had taken wives for themselves and for their sons from the peoples of the surrounding nations. Now, the concern Was not what we would call interracial marriage. The concern was with what we would call interfaith marriage. This was contrary to God's law. Only Israel as a nation knew the true and living God and knew from God how to worship him. The other nations served false gods through their various idols. So Ezra was distraught over their interfaith marriages, so much so that he tore his garments, he pulled his hair out of his head, he pulled a beard from his face, he fell on his knees, spread out his hands to heaven, and begged God to have mercy on them. Now, as hard as it may sound, the men repented, and they gave up their idol-worshiping wives. Now, why was Ezra so distressed by this intermarriage? And what was so wrong with these marriages that the dissolution of the marriages was preferred to their permanence? Well, Israel's history had proved that the religious corruption of the household meant the erosion of society, both religiously and civilly. Let me say that again. The religious corruption of the family leads to the erosion of society, both religiously and civilly. We think about Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the Israelites, causing the Israelites to sin so that they might invite God's judgment upon them. And how did he do it? He told Balak, give them your daughters in marriage. And as your idol-worshiping daughters lead their sons astray, God will visit wrath upon their heads. Probably the most notorious example that we find of this in the Bible is the wife of Ahab. You remember her, Jezebel? She persecuted the prophets of the Lord and promoted the worship of Baal and Asherah in Israel. It was this kind of thing that ultimately led to the exile of the northern tribes of Israel, first to the Assyrians, and then a little while later, a few generations later, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah, Uh, by the Babylonians. So here Ezra is distressed because he sees Israel repeating the same error that had got them sent into exile in the first place. The corruption of the home leads inevitably to the corruption of worship as people try to mix true and false religion, and then eventually they just abandon the true religion altogether. And this corruption of the home and of the church leads inevitably to the corruption of civil government And civil society as we see in Israel's abuse of the orphans and widows. All this kind of right down a hill leading into their exile. And here they were starting that cycle all over again. Nehemiah came along a little later than Ezra. He encountered the same problem of interfaith marriages and he responded a little differently than Ezra. Nehemiah 13, 23-25 says that when he discovered that they had married wives of Ashdod of Ammon and Moab, that their children only know how to speak in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak the Jews' language, he says, I contended with them, I cursed them, I smote some of them, I plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you will not give your daughters to their sons, you will not take their daughters to your sons or for yourselves. So Ezra pulled out his own hair Nehemiah pulled out their hair. (laughs) Both men knew that the corruption of the family would lead right back to the corruption of the nation and to the judgment of God upon the nation. Well, the author of Psalm 127 also knows, by divine inspiration, the importance of the family for the strength of the city or of society. For the restoration of Zion, God builds the covenant home by grace for conquest. As just as God was rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple through people like Ezra and Nehemiah, with the coming of Christ, God laid a foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone upon which he builds his church and advances the cause of his kingdom among the nations. And one of the institutions ordained for the restoration of Zion, for the restoration of the church, is the family, the Christian family. And a Christian family in connection with the other families in the church is ordained for the conquest of the nations. And so that building begins right there in Jerusalem. Just think about Acts. Beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to preach the gospel. right? The gospel of the kingdom of God. So first we're going to consider that God designed the covenant home as the most basic unit of society. Now, I speak here of the restoration of Zion because Psalm 127 is one of a collection of psalms. It's 15 psalms that are called the Songs of Degrees or in many modern translations called the Songs of Ascent. Psalms 120 to 134. Now, the ascent that's referred to is the steep road that you would be taking up to the city of Jerusalem. From wherever pilgrims traveled, they would only enter Jerusalem by ascending from some adjacent valley. So these psalms were collected... After Israel's return from Babylonian captivity, they weren't all written at that time, but the collection was put together during that time so that they might sing them as they journeyed up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been rebuilt, the temple had been rebuilt, and these songs were to be sung by traveling bands of pilgrims as they came up for the three festivals that they were commanded to come to Jerusalem to celebrate every year. They express the hope of Israel for the, t- the full return of exile and their full restoration to God. So we read in the previous psalm, Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Them was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. So they express their, their joy at being restored from exile. So Psalm 127 needs to be heard within this context of the special favor uh, that God shows to Israel and the focus on this theme of return from exile, the restoration of the people of God under the reign of God and then their eventual conquest of the nations as a restored people. The first verse of Psalm 127 speaks of the restoration and preservation of both the house and the city. The lines relating to the house and the city are in poetic parallelism. And in Hebrew poetry, as you know, <clears throat> you get this repetition uh, sometimes of the same idea using two different images. And you, so you get these uh, po- poetic parallelism that is synonymous. Other times, the poetic parallel shows a contrast between two things. So you might have the first line say something about wisdom and the next some line say something about folly. right? And that's poetic <coughs> parallelism that uses contrast. So you can have synonymous parallelism, you can have contrastive parallelism. And then oftentimes you have, well, it's neither synonymous or contrastive, but is designed to show a correlation, a relationship between two ideas. And that's what we find in this case, the relationship between the house and the city. This relationship is presented also in Psalm 128, the next psalm. For example, we read in verse verses 1 and 3, "Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways." What does that blessing look like? Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants around about thy table. And so the blessed life here is the enjoyment of family being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And then we see the impact of that fruitful family at the end of Psalm 128 in verses 5 and 6. "The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to bless you, your household's going to flourish, and then you will see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. You see, these aren't these things aren't just enumerated blessings, these are related blessings. Seeing the blessing and the fruitfulness of your children's children is to see also the peace of Jerusalem because this is the means by which God will do this. The flourishing of the covenant home is designed by God for the prosperity both of the church and of the political order. You want to see this illustrated, just think about David's life. Prior to his adultery with Bathsheba, David's life, his family certainly wasn't perfect, but it was stable and it was fruitful and that was reflected in the life of the body politic, right? Judah, Israel flourished in that context but after his affair with Bathsheba what happens David's family becomes like its own little war zone and what happens that's then reflected in the nation there's civil war in the nation and then suddenly they start falling before their enemies and losing territory having trouble the domestic distress is reflected in the societal distress now today our secular society, basically a statist society. So God is removed from the equation, and when that happens, the state steps in to fill the void. Don't worry, we will be God to you. The best way for the state to control its citizenry is to make the individual rather than the family the most basic unit of society. Because, you see, it's much easier to manipulate an individual's desires and control the individual's interests than it is to control a family with its own sense of name and identity and mission together. And unfortunately, many in America have fallen into this statist version of individualism. But biblically speaking, the family is not just a group of individuals who happen to be related by blood. It is a social unit Basic to society, both in the church sphere and in the civil sphere. So the church thrives on Christ-centered covenant families. No doubt this is one reason that we find household codes in several of the letters of the New Testament instructing Christians on godly household relationships. Fathers, how are you promoting family solidarity as a covenant home? If you are a single parent, your work is more challenging. But God's grace is sufficient. And to say to our not just our single parents, but even to our married parents, the church has vowed to assist you in the nurture of your family. If you're single without children, how are you helping the families of the church to flourish? And families, are you aware of the single people? in your church family how are you inviting them into your life to encourage their walk with the Lord Hebrews 10.24 says that we are to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works so do you spend time considering the various members of your church family and how you might provoke them to love and good works that 's like that King James translation provoke I'm usually not provoke toward love and good works I'm usually provoked in the other direction so we're to sit around and ponder how we might prod one another on, right? Your family is designed not only to bless the church, though. It's also blessed so that your family might bless all the families of the earth, if we might use the language that God spoke to Abraham, right? When he said, through you and through your seed, I will bless all the families of the earth. You're the seed of Abraham, beloved. You're the ones who are going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth, So the family is the basic unit of the civil sphere as well. God-fearing families who are involved in their communities, in their cities, in their counties, provide light and stability to the civil sphere in education, in business, infrastructure, government, a host of other aspects of life in the public square. Now, when you begin to see this, God's grand design for the family, you may marvel at it, but you may also feel a bit overwhelmed. You may have some regrets about things that you didn't do that you wish you had done, lost time. You might wonder how you will ever achieve such a lofty ideal. Well, when the Holy Spirit gave us Psalm 127, he not only enlarges our vision of the family, but he also reminds us not to focus on the family. Yeah, Psalm 127 reminds us not to focus on the family, but to focus on God. God Builds the covenant home. In verse, the first verse, we we're reminded of our need for God to make our labors effective. Right. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? Except the Lord watch the city, the watchman waketh in vain. You are to build a house, but you are not the builder. You are a builder, God is the builder. You are to keep watch on society, but you are not the watchman. You are a watchman, and God is the watchman. And if God is not keeping guard, then the city is surely doomed. God must, and according to his grace, God will build your house. This is not said, of course, to make us lazy or complacent. It's said to give us hope as we seek to do this. We're reminded of the necessity of the gracious power of God to build our homes so that we don't grow anxious as we seek to honor God as Christian households. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit speaks of the love of God to impart tranquility, peace, right? Not, not anxiety and worry as we try to build a home. For many of us, um, anxious toil is our default mode, right? Right? But God says here, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't work hard. We're certainly called to work hard. It doesn't mean that we never put in long days. There will be times when we must put in long days. But listen, if, if every day is a long day. So long that you are neglecting the spiritual nurture of your wife and of your children, then you need to stop and reevaluate what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I'm not trying to put a burden on anyone. I am not trying to lay down some law here. I am cautioning you to say, do some self-examination because you will wear yourself out. You will wear your wife out. You will wear your children out. And at the end of the day, what what you will have for all your labors is what the psalmist calls the bread of sorrows. The product of anxious labors. Trust God. Be diligent in your work. But do not run on the fuel of anxiety. Run on the fuel of faith in God. Verse 3 brings us back then to the grace of God. It reminds us of the gift of God in procreation. He says, lo! <laughs> that, that word's meant to get our attention. <clears throat> you know, I, I think sometimes I, I tend to think it's, it's our generation who has lost the idea that children are a precious gift from the Lord. But I think not. It's, I think it's been a perpetual problem. Here the psalmist He's getting ready to say something, and he wants to make sure you haven't fallen asleep yet. And so he says, lo, children are an inheritance of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Now, our society is terribly confused when it comes to children, right? Some seem to see children as a burden to be born, and so the fewer you have, the better. The birth rate in America reflects this negative attitude as we have fallen below a bare replacement rate. Others make idols of young children so that the father's mission in life is no, no longer defines the family's objectives, but the hobbies and the whims of the children have the family's energies dispersed in a hundred different directions that often have little to nothing to do with God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And then others are fearful of their children. I've seen this far too often as children move into the teenage years, because the social Darwinists tell us with all their authority— That teenagers are incapable of sound reason and self-control? It's not true, Trevor. It's not true, by the way. But parents believe this, and so they let them run wild because this is what they're told to expect. The Bible gives us a realistic as well as a positive view of children. Yes, children are sinners. Therefore, they require training and discipline. We're told to do that over and over again in the Bible. Our, all of our lives, just like the soil of the earth, naturally yield thorns and thistles because of the fall. But the good farmer does not walk away from the hard work of clearing the land and tilling the soil and planting the crops. And neither does a godly man walk away from the good work of nurturing the heart of his children. These are the heritage and reward of God to us. They are given as blessings, not burdens. Charles Spurgeon said, Where society is rightly ordered, children are regarded not as an encumbrance, but as an inheritance. And they are received not with regret, but as a reward. We know something of the biology of procreation, but we also need to know the theology of procreation. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. And like an estate inherited from a father that must be stewarded by the heir, so children are to be stewarded as belonging first to God and then to us. While we must recognize that the covenant home is God's work and the security of the city is God's work, we must not abuse this to justify our carelessness in building our homes and keeping watch in society. God's building and keeping does not negate our building and keeping. Rather, he makes our building and keeping effective. As Oliver Cromwell famously advised his soldiers, put your trust in God, my boys, and keep your powder dry. When trusting God is first, and when that trust is motivating our action then we give glory to God for our success. Yes, we kept the powder dry. But we know that God is the one who makes it explode to send the musket ball at just the right velocity to hit the target. Yes, we build our houses, educating our children, discipling them, praying with them and for them, guiding their steps, urging them on through difficulties, But for all of that, we humbly acknowledge that except the Lord built the house, we labor in vain. Are you trusting in the sufficiency of Christ for you and your family? How does your anxiety affect your household? How does anxiety affect your household's relationship with other households? in the church in your neighborhood how can you practice and cultivate trusting God more in your marriage practice trusting in God more in your parenting now our first observation from Psalm 127 was that God designed the covenant home as the most basic unit of society and that would be true whether Adam had sinned or not sinned but since Adam sinned We do have to face the reality of sin in the world. We face the reality of sin in society. And so we face the fact that there are powerful forces in this world that want to rule this world, to rule the nations, the cities, the churches, your lives for evil and perverse and destructive ends. That's the world we live in. So the psalm ends on the truth that God designs the covenant home for conquest, in his excellent little book entitled "The Household and the War for the Cosmos," C. R. Wiley calls the Apostle Paul's instructions for family godliness guerrilla piety. Now, children, this is not the gorilla that you go to see in the zoo. Okay, these are gorillas who are engaged in combat for the liberation of their homeland. That's the kind of guerrilla piety he's talking about here. Is it any accident that chapters five and six of Ephesians? outline the ethics for the household right and then immediately call us to war husbands love your wives wives respect your husbands children obey your parents fathers bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the lord Servants, obey your masters. Masters, don't mistreat your servants. And finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And having done all, stand your ground and fight. That's what the household is for. When you understand that the covenant family is a squad of soldiers in which dad is the squad leader... You're not surprised to read then in verse 4 that children are as arrows. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Arrows are weapons. Of course, they start out as sticks. But you wouldn't take a stick and put it in your bow and expect it to fly anywhere but back in your face. Right? Right? So you trim the twigs off of that stick and you clean it of bark and every rough spot and you carefully ply it back and forth and you work out the kinks until it's a straight shaft and then you sharpen its point and then you finally you add the feathers so that it cuts through the air just right and pierces the target The father is a mighty man. He's a warrior. And he knows the art of war. He studies the enemy. He prepares his weapons accordingly. Since children are compared to arrows, then verse 5 goes on to speak of the household as a quiver. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. If we take the words children of the youth, children of the youth, and the words full of them, we should say, don't delay marriage unnecessarily. Marry young if God provides a spouse if God doesn't provide a godly spouse then just wait on the Lord and once you're married don't delay having children unnecessarily start early and don't quit until your quiver is full have lots of babies Psalm 127 heading (laughs) the men over at the Fight Laugh Feast Network like to sign off their podcast every time saying if you're single get married if you're married have babies if you have babies get them baptized baptism is where we begin to hone our children as arrows and the fight that we're preparing them for is of course the good fight of faith the last words of the psalm show us that it is righteousness that is the virtue of victory they shall not be ashamed but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate now the enemies in the gate could be really i think one of two things maybe both the gate of the city was the place of judgment And so the enemies could be people in the community who are in a legal dispute with the family. That the family will not be ashamed means that their innocence will win the day. So virtue. The gate of the city was also the place where an invading army would try to capture. In this sense, virtuous families contribute to the security of the city against outside enemies. So it's not the braggart and the bully that conquer, it's the virtuous Are you preparing your children as arrows to fly in the face of the enemy? Is your family a covenant home to lend strength to the church, defending her purity and peace? Is your family a covenant household to build a more virtuous city for the glory of God? How can your home be more like an armory where your children are being outfitted for battle? What is your aim for your children and household? And don't say, please don't say, I just want them to be happy. (laughs) God did not establish your household so that the world can have more self-centered hedonists. God knows we don't need those. He brought husband and wife together, says the prophet, that he might have a holy seed. And from that holy seed, Psalm 8, 2 says, God will silence his enemies. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. This is the posterity of Jesus Christ, the inheritance of those who are in Christ. Just a few steps of ascent later in the Psalms of Ascent, in Psalm 132 and verse 10, is an expression of the ultimate hope in God's covenant with David, which is fulfilled in Christ. It says, For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed, thine Christ. The fullness of God's kingdom will come as Christ is putting all of his enemies under his feet. And what the what psalmist is telling us is that your family is one of the instruments that Christ is using to overcome his enemies and put them under his feet. And in fact, your babies, your suckling infants, he will use to shut the mouths of the enemy. So I close with these words of C.R. Wiley. He says, we have the fulcrum of the world in our possession, and that gives us leverage. I'm talking about our households. But the principalities know this. And that is why they are obsessively working to break your household down. You may wonder how your small stake could possibly threaten the powers that be. Well, just remember, a household ordered by the household code of Ephesians reflects the rule of Christ. And that makes the principalities fear. Besides that, he says, all things connect. That little tune that your household sings is in harmony with the music of the spheres. And that harmony restores many things that the enemy has perverted. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Psalm 134, the last of the songs of ascent. See, that's where the ascent is to end, right? Is all of us together in the house of the Lord, blessing the name of the Lord. Almighty God, our Father, bless us with faith and hope in Christ, who bids us to bring our children to him, that he might bless them. May you grant us understanding of the family and of your design for the family in society. Grant us wisdom for a well-ordered household, we pray. Draw our children into your saving embrace that they would know you and the joy of your salvation, that through them your glory would be made known in this generation, even shutting the mouths of your enemies through the lisping praise of thy infant holy seed. Through Christ we pray. Amen.